So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Today we are picking up in our Firm Foundation teaching series, and each week what we're doing is we're coming in close on a foundational aspect of faith that can make us immovable in life. And so today we come to the foundation of prayer. And here's what we're going to do. We have a lot of questions about prayer, whether we're asking them consciously or subconsciously, but we're going to answer some of the questions about prayer. And hopefully what's going to happen is this is going to deepen our desire to then go out and pray. And so what we're doing most weeks in this series is we're drawing from the Gospel of Matthew. So this is the first of four uh, real, historical, verifiable, reliable accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And the Gospel of Matthew could be summarized with three words. Jesus is king. And so in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus brings a viral sermon on the standards of his kingdom. And when I say viral, I'm just think, just like, you know, you go on YouTube and you're like, oh, that's got like millions of views. Okay, if this sermon were on YouTube from Jesus, it would have billions and billions and billions of views. That's how viral this was. That's how historical this was. That's how powerful this was. And the sermon that he brought is called the Sermon on the Mount. And the whole idea that Jesus was making in this sermon gives a lot of hope to our hearts, and it's that the righteous standards of his kingdom are not outside in. In other words, the, things that, the way that we behave, uh, the things that we do for God, it's actually inside out. It starts with what God in Christ has done for us. And here's, here's why there's a lot of encouragement right here. Because we're, we're not just imperfect, we're broken sinners who need to be restored. We don't just make mistakes, we need to be rescued. And so what Jesus is doing right here is he's saying, for all who need to be rescued, for all who have a broken heart that's bent toward things that are destructive, you can be changed. And you can be cleansed by the grace that I give. And here's how this grace shows up, and this is what Jesus talks about in this sermon, it's why it's important for us to look at. He talks about our attitudes. <laughs> you ever known somebody with a bad attitude? All right, don't, don't nudge your spouse or anything like that today. All right, let's, let's, let's keep it classy. But you, you, you ever uh, seen someone who, who their actions don't always line up with their words or their affections? It's that they're wanting something that they should hate or they're hating something that they should want. And that's what Jesus is talking about right here. And you might ask, well, what does this have to do with prayer? And the short answer to that question is, this has everything to do with prayer. Because true prayer is the result of inside-out righteousness. And, and true and real, real prayer is the, one of the clearest signs that we've been changed by Christ. And it's, it, it's the evidence of an affection for God. So prayer, here's a way to think about it. Um, this might be a fresh thought. Prayer is the fruit of an affection for God. You know, we talk a lot about emotions, and we should. Emotions are very important, but there's actually something deeper than our emotions that we need to spend a little bit more talking about, more time talking about, and it is our affections. Our affections are at the deepest part of us. So a way to think about your affections, they are what you love, and they are what you hate. And here's the thing about affections. We can't change our affections on our own. 
And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need a loving Father. Because the way this works is Jesus enters into our lives by faith. And he gives us an inside-out righteousness. And what that means is we get a new heart. And with that new heart comes new affections where we begin to want what he wants and hate what he hates. And it's all good, true, and right. And this is what Christians mean. This is what the Bible means when we say, if anyone is uh, in Christ, they are new. They are a new creation. That means that you've been given new affections. And the fruit of Christian affection and the root of a firm foundation is this, a heartfelt desire to hear and respond to God in prayer. And so prayerlessness, here's a way to think about it. Maybe you think about like, if I'm not praying, then that just means I'm not bothering God. You know, maybe you're wired, maybe you have that personality where you're just like, um, I just don't want to bother people. And so I'm going to keep this to myself. I'm going to figure it out myself. Or maybe there, it's almost like a badge of honor. I'm not bothering God. Or maybe it's a badge of honor, like kind of prideful. You're just like, I don't need God. But actually, prayerlessness, it's not a badge of honor. It's a sign that our affections are disordered. And they need to be reordered and they need to be renewed. And that's all of us. And so right in the center of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about prayer, he's dealing with our affection. So the question to ask at this point is this, what really has your heart? What do you love? What do you hate? Does that match the things that would match God, what God loves and what God says is going to hurt you? And so as we learn how to build our lives on a foundation of prayer, let's just start really basic. How about that? Is anybody just like, man, keep it simple for me? That's me. Okay, what is prayer? There's a question. There's a lot of confusion around what is prayer. And a confused world needs a clear word. That's why biblical preaching and teaching is so important. That's, that's why we are to uh, seek out what God has to say about these otherwise unclear and chaotic issues. So what is prayer? Well, in verse 9 of the Lord's Prayer, I'm just going to give you two words out of, out of verse 9. It's, it, it says clearly that we are not praying to a force. We are praying to our Father. And so I want to give you a definition of prayer that springs right out of the Scriptures. And here it is. Prayer is personal communication with the true and living God. There's a lot within this, but personal communication, let's talk about that. One of the lies out there about prayer is that it can actually be impersonal. That it can be this silent, tranquil, wordless contemplation. Uh, and, and in this view, prayer is basically based on some general, impersonal, undefined sense of God. And so prayer, it's an effort to communicate, but it cannot be a real conversation because the personal knowledge of God is lacking. It's interesting, one study showed that 30% of atheists pray. 17% of atheists pray multiple times a day. And the, the, the question is, who are you praying to? Or what are you praying to? And here's, here's the thing, whether, whether you are or aren't a Christian, you're, you're an atheist or a Christian, or wherever in between you might be on your spiritual journey, 
if you're an honest seeker and you want true knowledge of the living God, God will reveal himself to you. Jeremiah 33, 3, we read that when we call to God, he will answer us and he will show us great and hidden things that we previously have not known. And that's true for anyone who honestly wants to know God. But the purpose of prayer is not to become one with nature or to empty our minds. No, prayer is personal. I wonder if you would just say this out loud with me. Prayer is personal. One more time. Prayer is personal. So now we're starting to understand what prayer is actually all about. It's personal communication with a personal God. And here's something that I would encourage. I hope this sticks with you. Our prayers are only as powerful as our prayers are personal. And that's why true prayer is to the true and living God. So it's humbling, but it's also heartbreaking to say this out loud. But if what Jesus taught about prayer really is true, and we believe that it is, then Muslims, Jews, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Buddhists, Hindus, are all praying to false and lifeless gods. Humbling and heartbreaking. You don't say that with arrogance. You don't say that to be proud. You say that like, I want you to know the real and the true and the living God who has revealed himself once and for all through the person and work of Jesus Christ who came to die so we could live. And so as Christians, here's what we do. We pray to the true and living God who is three in one, Father, Spirit, Son. It's personal. We draw near with confidence to our personal Father through faith in a personal life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, filled by the personal power of His Holy Spirit. And so in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, Jesus gives us a vision for how to pray and how not to pray, and it's all personal. So before he tells us how to pray, he tells us how not to pray. So here it is. This is in verses 5 through 8. Go ahead and take a look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, or today you might say in the churches, and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus is cooking already. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So a Gentile would be like the equivalent in that context of someone who does not believe in Jesus, who doesn't have a true and living personal knowledge of Jesus. They would after Jesus would unleash his spirit through his servants, but this is a picture of someone who's not thinking biblically. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
Do not be like them. Clear enough, right? For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. All right, so here's what we see. Two ways not to pray from Jesus. First of all, don't pray hypocritical prayers. And this comes when Jesus says, the reason why they are praying is that they may be seen by others. So what Jesus is saying right here is that some people pray and their prayers are not for God, they are actually for them. And what they're doing is trying to impress people, trying to have others think more highly of them than maybe they should. And I want to just give some clarity around this idea of how are we to work out our our faith in public? How are we to practice it in public? Well, Jesus, actually, he already talked about that in Matthew 5, 16, the same sermon. He says, let your light shine before other people uh, and so that they may see your good works. So it's okay to see it as long as you are deflecting the glory that they may glorify your Father in heaven. But right here, these prayers are all about glorify me. Look at me. Look at how many Bible verses I know. Look at how many big words I know. Look at how long I can pray, and it's hypocritical. Or it might be a uh, hypocritical prayer because you just want some reward from God. Married couples, could you just imagine if the only time that your spouse talks to you is when they want something from you? All right, that's not affection, that's a transaction. And it's basically the equivalent, I don't know if you have a AAA membership or not, but it's like, I need roadside assistance, so would you come and help me? Now, I've not heard the story about having that AAA representative come after you call them and then you strike up this lifelong friendship where you talk every week. But that's what the hypocritical prayer and prayer is doing right here. But then there's don't, don't pray hypocritical prayers, but also don't pray un. Biblical prayers, empty phrases. So right here, prayer is not about the living God. Whereas before, it was not for the living God. Right here, it's not even about the living God. It's actually about something else. And that word empty phrases could be taken to mean unbiblical phrases. It was words that were put into us from the world, not words that were put into us from God's word. And if you want to know what is a biblical prayer, a biblical prayer is scripture fed. So this goes all the way back. It's a deep idea. When you think about where did we get the breath to begin with to speak words at all? Well, in the beginning, God breathed. It's a Hebrew word, ruach, the ruach of life into Adam and into Eve, and that gave us the ability to communicate. So all of our words that we speak are to come from God and be spoken back to God so that we can be in alignment with His purposes. And they're personal. They're personal words. We're not robots. Uh, We're not just uh, do this, say this, walk here, stand there. It's, no, personalize my word. Take my word to heart through your everyday experiences and relationships and settings. And so... A biblical prayer is, is praying God's word back to him. But it's also, it's, it's scripture fed, but then it's spirit led. So the Holy Spirit is the person and power of God that fills the Christian. 
So Scripture, what does it do? It, it conforms our thoughts to think God's thoughts. What does the Spirit do? It, he changes our affections so that we want what God wants. And so when we start praying, Scripture-fed and Spirit-led, but right here, it's very self-fed and self-led prayers. So that's how not to pray. All right, we got that clarity out of the way. Now let's go ahead and let's see what does Jesus have to say about how to pray. This is going to come in verses 9 through 15. So Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. All right, so now we come to what is known as the Lord's Prayer. And this is the ultimate master class on prayer. In some ways, it's a summary of all other prayers. Because what it does, and what Jesus is about to give, is guidance on how to personalize the purposes and the priorities of prayer. Tim Keller, great thinker, author, pastor, has gone to be with Jesus. He wrote a phenomenal book called Prayer. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. But in that book, he says this, The Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. Jesus gave it to us as the key to unlock all the riches of prayer, yet it is an untapped resource partially because it is, get this, so familiar. So think about it this way. Let's say that you're visiting a friend and for the first time, um, and that, that friend who you're going to visit lives in an apartment that is within just a few feet of train tracks. And so it was built right beside train tracks. And so you go in, you settle in, you sit down, you start talking, and then you just hear this rattle and this noise, and it's like, what is that? And you jump up and you're startled. And you say, what is that? And your friend just looks back and says, what is what? <laughs> like, well, what's that noise? Like, I feel like the, the, the apartment's going to come collapsing down. It's like, oh, that, that's just the train. I guess I've tuned it out at this point. I've heard it so many times. We're the same way with the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> we've heard it so many times that we can barely hear it again. And here's why we've got to come to this with fresh eyes and open hearts, because the whole world is starving. We all are starving for a spiritual experience, and Jesus gives us the means to it in just a few words, and we can barely hear it because we've come to tune it out. How do we combat familiarity? That's the question right here. Well, we've got to have fresh eyes, and we've got to have humble hearts, and so I, would, I just want to invite you right now. In fact, I just want to pray, Father, would you give us fresh eyes and humble hearts to hear this prayer in a way that will draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, illuminate our understanding. Amen. So verse 9, Jesus goes on, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. All right, so to, what does it mean to be a real, true Christian? Well, to be a real and true Christian is to know God is your Father and the church is your family. And so we talked about the personal nature of prayer. All right, we're, we're communicating not with an it, not with a force, but with a loving father. Okay, so it's personal, 
but it's also intended to be communal. And this is where the church comes in. And so you might ask the question, does Coastway Church have a prayer ministry? In fact, we do. Every single one of our community groups is a prayer ministry. And that's why we would say that as a church, we're not, we don't just have groups as a program, but we look to our, our, our groups as the identity of who we are because that's where prayer happens. That's where we come close to God, where we hear from Him, where we respond to Him, and we do it in community. Small groups of men, women, and children who pray to the true and living God change the world and shape history. And that's what we want to be made up as a church. Notice how this, uh, this verse, our Father in heaven, hallowed. All right, so I'm going to guess you probably haven't used that word in any sentences this week. It's not really a word that we use, like hallowed. Uh, there's no great English equivalent, but it could be translated as holy, as glorified, or altogether greater. And here's the point. The name of the true and living God stands above all others and is to be praised above all others. Here's a way to think about it. You might have heard of the 15th century astronomer Nicholas Copernicus. He brought about what has been come to be known as the Copernican Revolution, this really smart scientist. And basically, the Copernican Revolution was this breakthrough in scientific inquiry where we came to understand that the sun and the solar system and all the planets do not revolve around the earth. But for so long, that was, that was the understanding, is that we literally were at the center of the universe. And everything revolved around us, but Copernicus comes along and he says, we got it all wrong. Actually, the sun is the center of our solar system, and it is the power of the sun that holds every other planet, including the earth, in its proper place in space. And what we need to have if we are going to pray powerful prayers is we need to understand where the power really comes from, and we need a Copernican revolution, if you will, with how we pray God is the sun at the center of the solar system of how we pray. We revolve our prayers around His will and His glory and His ways and His plans. And so what we tend to do is we tend to put ourselves at the center and then there's not really any room left for God. But what Jesus is saying right here is you've got it all wrong. And here's, here's a way to think about it. When we finally realize that our life it's not ultimately about us, it's about God and His glory, and that our life will go better for us if we live that way, that it doesn't revolve around us. That actually transforms our prayer life um, because we can take good and we can take bad from God, and it cannot drive us to despair. So, for example, God may hallow His name by prospering you so you can then give Him credit. Or He may hallow His name by letting you suffer so you can glorify Him through it. When we understand this, that His name can be hallowed as our life goes well, and that His name can also be hallowed as we suffer well, it changes everything. And that's what this first verse is about. Verse 10, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in 
heaven. So right here, right here what's happening is the, the, hard, the hard work, the heart work of the Christian life. It is to come to a place to where we are ready to yield our will to God's will. You know, those yield signs whenever you're driving on the highway, what happens if you just plow through them, there's going to be a collision. And until you learn to yield in these moments when God says, uh, God says not yet or no, or he permits something that you don't want, then there's always going to be a collision course between you and God. And so what we're doing right here is we're welcoming God to so fully rule our affections that we want what He wants and we hate what He hates. And the question then is, your kingdom come, your will be done. How does God's kingdom come so His will can be done in our lives? And here's how it happens, is we first of all, we need to have our sins cleansed by God's Son. And that removes the guilt it, it, it melts away the pride. And all of these things that would be destructive in our life, it just begins to, to melt away. And when our sins are cleansed by God's Son, what happens is we're given access to the Father. We are restored in a personal way to Him so that we can approach Him. But then what happens is our thoughts, this is how the kingdom comes, is we're cleansed by the Son, and then our thoughts are conformed to the Scriptures. We, we go to the Word of God for a word from God, and that's how we begin to relate. That's how we begin to think. And as, as this happens, we're being taught by our Father. But then what happens is we, we must be changed by the Holy Spirit. So cleansed by the Son, conformed to the Scriptures, and changed by the Spirit. Because what the Spirit does is He gives us the power, even the desire, to yield to the Father's will even when it doesn't make sense to us. And every real Christian, if, if we're being real, have to grow to a place where we yield to our Father's will in two areas. And I just want to tell you, these are the two areas where we're most likely to doubt, where we're most likely uh, to deconstruct our relationship with God. It's the things that God permits that we don't want, and it's the things that God prohibits that we do want. So the things that he permits, this is something very hard that God doesn't necessarily cause, but he will permit. So think about Jesus' life for a moment. Jesus was permitted to be born to a poor family, to be tempted in the wilderness, to be insulted, falsely accused, betrayed, denied, and unjustly crucified. Why, though? Well, it's because on the other side of his yielding to all of God's uncomfortable permissions that were so painful came salvation and came resurrection. And from the cross, we see that the joy set before Jesus made it all worth it. And so Jesus faced permissions from the Father that were uncomfortable and for you, you're going to face permissions from the Father that you're not going to want, you're not going to like, you're going to want to run from. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be some betrayal. It could be a, a season with the kids that's just really, really hard. It could be a sickness. It could be an accident. It could be you getting caught in something that you didn't think anybody knew about or would ever find out about. 
It could be something that you're dealing with at school or at work, but God's going to permit something. But then there's what he prohibits. This is something that we want that God says is not best. So God says, hey, don't lust. Don't lie. Don't become an angry, vengeful, bitter person. Don't overindulge. Don't put created things above the creator. And any loving parent understands this, that as as we permit something that our kids don't like, why would we do it? It's for their good, leading to something that they can't yet see or understand. I'll give you an example of this. This past week, we went to the dentist, took our kids to the dentist. Both of them had dentist appointments. And uh, both of them were very reluctant and maybe even a little scared, uncertain at first. I think there might be some footage right here. But we actually had our son right there, and he's with the dentist, and they're poking around in his mouth. And as you can see, he's not feeling it. He's not about this. There's nothing about this scenario that makes any sense, mom or dad. Why would you let this person who I don't know poke around in my mouth? I'm trying to like grow teeth. What's this about? But then the reason, you'll notice mom's there. I'm there taking a picture, of course. <laughs> and we're permitting this because it's for a greater good because we want him to have healthy teeth. And he can't understand that yet. But after it was all said and done, there was a reward. There was a prize wall at the dentist. Adults in the room, if you find a dentist where adults can still get a prize at the end, please let me know because I want to go there. But what happened right here is there was good on the other side that in the moment they couldn't see, but we knew was coming. Why does God permit hard things? It's because when you trust him through it, there's good on the other side that you may not see, but he knows it's coming. He knows it's coming. And also, the opposite is true. When we prohibit something they do want that would actually hurt them, it's for their good. Okay, so an example of this would be don't play in the road. But why would you tell me not to play in the road? Because I don't want you to get hurt. And our kids are more likely to listen to us when they trust us, and that's actually the point through all of this. The way to get to a place of yielding prayer is to fully trust your heavenly Father. As Romans 8.28 puts it, we know that all things, including what God permits and including what God prohibits, work together for the good of those who love God. And then we get to verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay, so the reformer John Calvin said a good example of this prayer is in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. You may want to write this down. This won't be on the screen. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. So in other words, what's being said right here, daily bread is a filler phrase for necessities that God has purposed to provide not necessarily luxuries that he always will. And that's hard for us because we live in America, land of the free, home of the brave, individualistic, autonomy, give me what I want, when I want it. 
And so when God says, I'll give you what you need, that's very humbling for us. But it's also very encouraging for us because when we have a need and we see him as meeting our greatest needs, we will go to him and he will meet those, whether it's financially. Maybe some of you, you have a financial need. Maybe you have a relational need. Maybe there's an emotional need. Maybe there is a physical need. Whatever that is, when you come to know and trust God as your father, it changes how you relate with your needs. So instead of being arrogant about it, like, God, you've got to give me this because you owe it to me, or anxious about this, I don't know that God's going to give this to me, so I'm just not going to pray. We look at the birds of the air, and we see how God feeds them. We look at the lilies of the field, how God clothes them And we know that in the eyes of our Father, we are of far greater value. Confident of the truth of Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things, meet our needs, and give us peace? Give us this day our daily bread. Verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So this is some of the clearest language in the New Testament on what forgiveness truly is. And there's no surprise that it comes from Jesus in the context of prayer. I want you to notice how Jesus links forgiveness with debt. That's because forgiveness is a financial term. Forgiveness, what is it? It's the choice to release another from the debt they owe you. And so when you think about this in terms of our relationship with God, when we're left in sin... We owe a debt that we could never pay. But in Christ, he chose to pay a debt that he didn't owe. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And by grace through faith, he fully and finally forgives our debt, our sins. And this part is given to us to personalize, first of all, just how sinful we are compared to just how forgiving He is. Later on in Ephesians 4.32, we see that we are to forgive others as Christ forgave us. And so here's how this works. We go before a God who forgave our incalculable debt, and we're supposed to take inventory of any place where we're not showing that same forgiveness to other people. And when we refuse to forgive, we're supposed to step back and think, this is kind of hypocritical, isn't it? When I think about just how much God has forgiven me, and this brings us to the knowledge that God can either be our debt canceller or he can be our debt collector. And much of how we know where we stand shows up in how we pray, and also how we forgive. Why? It's because forgiven people forgive people. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So lead us not into temptation. That's the evil that's inside of us. So another way to think about this would be pray to God, lead me out of the temptation that I so often enter into. Now, you led Jesus out of the, out of the desert, out of the wilderness. We saw that last week. And you can lead me out of this temptation. A a helpful verse right here is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. When you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you may 
escape. And so we pray this to God. But then it's deliver us from evil. So that's the evil outside of us. Lead us not into temptation. That's evil inside of us. Deliver us from evil. That's the evil outside of us. And let me just tell you, if, if God were to reveal to us every in, evil intention that the devil or certain people have, have for us, it would make us angry. It would make us anxious. It would make us afraid. But the good news is our prayers to the Father for deliverance from dangerous people, places, situations actually make a difference. That's why Psalm 23, 4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no what? I will fear no evil. I will face evil. I will not fear that evil because I know that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not fear. This is why in James chapter 2, we read that the demons themselves who actually have a right knowledge of God doesn't change them, doesn't save them. They shudder at the thought of what God might do to them. And part of what our prayers can do is can unleash that protective power around our lives from evil. Verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, yikes, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And you may think, didn't we already talk about forgiveness just a few verses ago, Jesus? I mean, is there an echo in the room? Uh, yes, but apparently forgiveness is so central to prayer that Jesus brings it up twice. So Jesus is not saying that the Father's forgiveness is a reward for the good work of going out and forgiving all of those who wrong you first. No, he's saying that the freedom to forgive others is a clear sign that you were first forgiven. Because when we refuse to forgive others, it's a cryptic sign that we've not been forgiven. Because if you think about it, we can't give something that we've not received. We can't offer what we don't possess. And so Jesus bookends the Lord's Prayer by talking about forgiveness again. Because if forgiveness is not personal to us, then God cannot be personal to us. And what is prayer? It's personal communication with the true and the living God. And so it's important for us to acknowledge forgiveness is very hard. Even for Christians. All of us probably have someone that we need to forgive. But why does anybody, real Christians included, struggle to forgive? And there's a simple answer to that question. Because we've allowed the offense to become bigger than the cross. We've allowed the offense to become bigger than the cross because when we focus on others' offense against us, forgiveness will never make sense. But when we focus on our offense against God on the cross, unforgiveness could never make sense. Even as Jesus is being executed by his enemies, he cries from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And if Jesus did that for us, as we are numbered among his enemies, then he can give us his Holy Spirit to do that for others who sin in a far lesser degree against us than we sinned against him first. And so everything we need right here, this is the Lord's Prayer, everything that we need to personalize the purposes and power of prayer are all right here. And here's what I want to give you with these last few minutes that we have, a helpful pattern on how to pray. And here it is. When you pray remember to pray. So here's what we mean by this. 
Each letter of the word pray represents a prayer we should pray, and it all comes out of the Lord's prayer. So P is praise, R is repent, ask is, or A is ask, and Y is yield. Praise, repent, ask, yield. And so the point is not that you'll pray all four of these every time. It's that most every prayer will be one of these four as you pray. And all of these, they need to be happening personally. They need to be happening in community. So community groups, think through how do we do this together? How do we do this together? So first of all, let me talk about praise. Praise. This comes from verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So one of the ways our Father can be hallowed in our hearts is by giving Him praise. And here's what I want to ask. Where do you need to personalize praise? Where do you need to personalize this by praising your Father? And you may say, where do I even start? And here's, here's a simple way to think about it. We're trying to give clarity through God's Word. Give Him praise for who He is and give Him praise for what He's done. Who He is. He's good, and he's great. Simple ways. To, I'm just trying to give some simple categories to help us pray. He's good. Where has he been faithful to you? He's good. Where has he been forgiving toward you? That's where you praise him. He's great. He's all wise. He knows more than we. He's all powerful. He's more able than we are, and he's ever-present. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He's good and he's great. And then for what he has done, has God sustained you? Has God healed you? Has God rescued you? Has God provided for you in some area? These are occasions of praise. Praise him for what he's done for you. Praise Him for what He's doing in you. Has He convicted you of sin? Has He freed you from some enslaving habit? Has He changed your affections to align with His? And praise Him for what He's doing through you. When you witness, you tell somebody about Jesus. When you serve, you give your time and talent for the good of others. And when you are a steward, you leverage your resources for the glory of God to advance His mission. He's working through you, and that's an occasion for praise. And because God is working through our church, we have had the joy of seeing 32 people baptized in two years. And we say, do it again, Lord. Do it again, Lord. Something I've tried to do over the years is to pray prayers that are specific enough to actually know when God answers them. I'm going to say that again. Specific enough to know when God would answer them. A lot of our prayers are so vague, we wouldn't know if God answered them or not. <laughs> And the reason why this is important is because what we want to do is we want to praise Him when He does answer those prayers. And I was convicted this past week to be more intentional right here because going back to 2016, I did this this morning, I was just like, I want to give you praise, God. I'm about to call our people to do this, and I just want to, I want to do this. Going back to 2016, I counted 77 prayers that God has answered just in my life personally. And there's many more that I didn't write down and I was just reminded of how praiseworthy that he truly is. So praise, that's how we pray. Next is repent. This comes from verse 12, forgive us our debts. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation. So forgiveness, what is it? It's the heart of repentance. And Jesus talks about forgiveness right here. 
And so anytime we seek God's forgiveness or someone else's forgiveness, we are repenting from the heart. And so to personalize this, I just want to say, who do you need to forgive? I was talking just a few weeks ago to a a close and trusted mentor of mine, just about some past hurt in my own life. And uh, he looked at me and he said, you need to forgive that person. And he was right. I thought I'd forgiven, but the way I was talking communicated that I hadn't. You know you have a biblical friend when you start saying something about someone who's hurt you and they're honest enough to say, forgive. Don't punish, forgive. Who is that for you? Who do you need to forgive? And what do you need to turn from? If you don't know, ask the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Ask someone close to point it out. And as you do, know that God's kindness leads to repentance, and repentance will lead to refreshment. A stands for ask. This is verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Will you make it personal? Where do you need to ask God to meet some need that you have? So daily bread, that's that's a filler phrase. Okay, personally... Lord, I need, I need daily finances. I, I, I need daily strength. I need daily relationships. I, I need daily closeness with you. I need daily emotional health. What is it? Ask him for it. Ask him for it. As a church, we're asking for the daily bread of three things. More builders to build the church with us. A, a budget that's fully funded internally from our church and uh up to this point, we've had external partners and churches who have helped us get started, but we're going off our parents' insurance and we're trying to pay our own bills. And that's something that we're praying that's going to happen. And then we're praying for a building. We're praying that God would actually give us a building that would be the home and hub permanently of Coastway Church going forward. And we know that God is actively answering so many of these prayers in some incredible ways. John Newton said, Thou art coming before a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power is such one could never ask too much. So ask him, lastly yield, this is verse 10, and this is the hardest part. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Can you pray that? Can you personalize that? Is there some area of your life where you need to stop saying, my will be done, and start praying, thy will be done? And here's where it gets real. What has your father permitted that you don't want? And what has he prohibited that you do want? That's where yielding prayer gets personal, and that's where you pray, God, would you bring my affections into alignment with yours, and whatever that is, will you yield it to him in prayer and trust that he's a good, good father? And so the call today is to go out and personalize this. Personalize this individually, personalize this in community. But more than that, it's to see how Jesus was not just the ultimate teacher on prayer, he's the ultimate example of prayer. You see, before the cross, Jesus went to a garden and he prayed. And what, what's the garden about? Well, a garden is where we forsook our Father, but it's also where Jesus would prove faithful to the Father. In that moment, the Father was permitting the Son to face the worst form of pain and punishment ever. And he did it because of us, and he did it instead of us. And here's what he prayed, Luke twenty two forty two, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
we're being honest, that's where most of our prayers stop. But Jesus keeps going, and he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it's because he did that that we can draw near to God and receive help and receive hope in time of need. And that's what we want to do right now. Would you bow your heads? Open your hearts. Father, you've given us so much to to process and consider today. We thank you that prayer is personal. And we just want to personalize what you have given to us in the Lord's Prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, we praise you. We praise you for who you are and what you've done. We could personalize that in so many ways. But Lord, give us, give us our daily bread. Where are those areas where we need to just come to you and ask for you to meet our needs and trust that you will? Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. God, we repent. We turn to you in those areas where we've turned away from you. And Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the cry of our hearts. That's the cry of our church. And I pray that we would yield to everything that you have purposed, knowing that there's good on the other side that we may not see. May we be a praying church, Lord. May we see lives changed. May we see disciples made. May we see marriages restored. May we see May we see a movement. May we see a movement that echoes for all eternity and that brings renewal to the grand strand, to our church, to our homes, and to our world. In Jesus' name, amen.